After the settlement of the Holy Land, after the Exodus, we hear virtually nothing about the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Along with the tribe of Dan, they were located in the furthest north of the Israelite settlement. And around the year 930 BC, uh, the kingdom that had been united under David and Solomon was split into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom eventually became known as Samaria, as you might know. It's named for its capital city in the land of Ephraim. The land of Samaria is that same Samaria as that of the New Testament, though the inhabitants over many hundreds of years underwent a number of changes. Because the northern kingdom that separated Jerusalem from Zebulun and Naphtali, this northern kingdom of Samaria fell in the year 721 BC to the Assyrians. Uh, We don't know much of what goes on in these lands from the biblical record because the biblical record was kept in the south. And so it kind of falls out. Uh, But obviously there are still Jews living there. We just don't know what much about them, how they lived, etc. Notice that the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali are also called Galilee. And indeed, this is the area that we know better as the region on the west of the Sea of Galilee, north of Samaria. And our Lord frequently has to pass through Samaria to get from his home in Galilee to Jerusalem in the south. Again, we really don't hear much about Galilee either in the Old Testament. It's hard to know when it's being referred to and when not because the word has many meanings. It can just mean a a district or a circuit. It can mean the area, sort of the western and northern uh, border of the lake or the Sea of Galilee. One mention we do have of it that seems to be a mention of a place and not just a general name for a district Uh, is that Solomon gave 20 cities in Galilee, to whom you're asking me? Uh, To the Phoenician king Hiram of Tyre, who helped him build the temple and his palace. Uh, This doesn't reflect very well on Solomon, if I may say so, uh, giving lands that have been settled by Israelite tribes over to a pagan king. We have this uh, district of the nations or district of the Gentiles. This translates in the first reading, Galil Hagoyim, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles, as the gospel has it. And this is to say that the Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations, it's known in a kind of familiar way to the Bible writers and, and the Jews as a pagan place. It is not really felt to be fully incorporated into the Jewish nation anymore. So these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, underwent a kind of double darkening. First by being cut off from Jerusalem and the kingdom of David. And then by having these Phoenician settlers and overlords imposed by Solomon's gift to Hiram. And so when we hear someone say something like, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a sarcastic remark that comes from the mouth of Nathaniel in John's Gospel. It makes some sense in the context that I've drawn. Nazareth is an uncouth town in an uncouth province. Why 
when the word of God chose to take flesh, would he settle in a literally God-forsaken place like Galilee? It's not enough just to note the fulfillment of a prophecy, though that has more to it than we might think at first, this prophecy in the first reading. It's a way of saying that when Jesus Christ enters our world, just as when he enters our lives, he has this habit of overlooking our strong points, maybe not focusing on them, maybe overlooking is too strong, but coming to live with us in our poverty, in our weakness, even in our unbelief, our crudeness, that part of us that is gauche and impolitic, unfit for polished public viewing. I found over the years uh, offering spiritual direction to seminarians and priests that no matter how many times we hear our Lord telling us he has come for the sick, he's come for the sinner, uh, we still have this way of trying to primp ourselves for him, pretend that uh, we can give him the shiniest part of ourselves and ignore that dark part. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't offer God the very best that we have. We ought to do that. Uh, it's to say, rather, that the gift is never complete until we give him everything, including all that we're ashamed of, all those things we'd rather hide away in darkness. Do not be afraid of his approach into this darkness, this light shining in our darkness. St. John reminds us, when our hearts condemn us, remember that God is greater than our hearts. Let the light of Christ shine into whatever is cloudy, murky. Welcome that light, even when it is painful. Don't be afraid to bear a little shame, if I can paraphrase St. Siloam the Asenite. The light that shines there is that light which enlightens every man coming into the world. We often think of Matthew's gospel as being sort of more historical and less mystical than John's gospel, but I think he's saying the very same thing. In this place where people are sitting and dwelling in darkness, here comes the light that enlightens us all, that light that shone from the beginning, the purifying light that darkness cannot overcome, that shines light from light, from the heart of the Holy Trinity. Let us, as we wind down this season of Christmas, open our eyes to the deifying light that walks among us even today, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.